everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down with Martine Palau to talk about how organizations can do DEIB right. Martine is a DEI thought leader and learning and development expert who understands the challenges that human resources executives have in driving DEI in the workplace. Her book, The ABCs of Diversity, A Manager's Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the New Workplace, makes DEI accessible to everyone in the workplace, including managers. Martine knows that HR and managers are the core groups that can drive DEI since they influence an organization's makeup. So join our conversation as Martine and I talk about how you can do DEIB right. Hi, everyone. It's Jenna Wall. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down with Martine Kalau, and we are talking about, oh gosh, probably a conversation that I wish everyone could hear right now, how to do diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, DEIB for short, right. Because so many organs, organizations right now maybe are taking approaches that aren't allowing people to see the importance of how and why we need to bring DEIB into the workplace. But before we get into our conversation, Martine, thank you so much for being here. Could you just go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be, how you came to be interested in this topic? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Um, I'll start off with, I was born in Zambia. My family is from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formerly Zaire, came to the U.S. when I was four years old. And I share that story because a few years later, um, after my mother and stepfather died, I was orphaned and um, I became undocumented and stateless. So I didn't have a country to go back home to. Um, in the process of, you know, figuring out and navigating that journey of pretty much not having a family, not having a country, not having a home. Um, I was exposed to so many different communities, um, whether it was I put myself through boarding school, right, um, found, had a benefactor who was able to pay my way through boarding school. So I went to predominantly white Southern boarding school in Charlottesville, Virginia, right? So that was one community um, that I was exposed to and I learned to navigate that. And even within that boarding school, um, I, within that prep school, the the day students were from Charlottesville. They were Southern, of course, and they were very affluent. Um, the dorm students were predominantly South Korean, right? And so that was another subculture or community. Um, I went to, in, in middle school, I went to predominantly African-American middle school, um, and then went to college. So I was exposed to so many different communities, um, including the undocumented community and stateless community. And that really shaped this belief that, you know, I could actually be the interpreter of different, of, of, of different communities. And, and, and I had like this sort of privilege where I could widen my lens because I was exposed to so many different communities and understand their perspectives, the questions they had, um, the lack of clarity they might have about a different community, right? And so for me, that just gave me an opportunity to be an interpreter. And in other words, a bridge builder, right? And I also understood very early on that when you're part of a marginalized community, it's easy to feel a loss of dignity, 
right? Based on how others treat you. And really what you want is not charity. What you want is for someone to invest in you, to see the value that you can bring. And so this all sort of encapsulates into the whole conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, because that's really what it is. It's about being an interpreter across different lines, different communities, different conversations, and build, be, being able to bridge those uh, build those bridges, right? And reminding anyone who has more opportunity, more access, more privilege, um, that they get you, right? In the space of DEIB, they get to invest, right? In others, right? So that way they can build stronger communities. And I just apply that to the workforce. I love that. Sorry. I, well, I love that it's giving voice, you know, to, and within a workplace, it could be the marginalized groups. It could be the, the voices that are never listened to. And I yeah. love what you're doing and the work that you're doing, because we obviously need it more than ever. But, you know, one of the things that we were talking about at Crosscom last week was even to understand what it might be like. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this uh, and you may or may not, but we were talking about the difference versus fitting in versus belonging. Like, and I think that, you know, in the workplace, how we were looking at it as people don't even realize that so many workplaces are designed to expect you to fit in instead of creating a place and fitting in might be, you know, looking at a problem in a certain way, dressing the same way. It could be a variety of things, but I'm curious, like, how do you kind of address that? Or how do you see the difference between belonging and fitting in? Oh, that's such a great question because I think that It's the distinction between assimilation and actually assimilation versus multiculturalism, right? So you can be part of an organization. I always contextualize it in the the space of organizations, but you can be part of an organization where, you know, there are all these different regions that the organization, um, you know, uh, has offices in across the globe. So they're fitting in or assimilation looks like, hey, let's model, let's have everyone um, acclimate to one type of region, right? And oftentimes what I see with some organizations that are U.S.-based and have maybe a headquarter, headquarters in U.S., somewhere in the U.S., and then they have offices somewhere, you know, in, in, in different locations in Europe, there's this sort of expectation for everyone to sort of assimilate to the American culture. I don't know that everyone realizes it, but that usually happens, right? So that's sort of like the the, the fitting in. And belonging looks like multiculturalism. It looks like, hey, okay, we've got offices in all these different locations. Let's figure out a way to fuse, right? Um, And create one culture. And one culture looks like a mix of all these different subcultures together, coming together, and then we form our organization. So I think that it's a lot harder to do that, right? To get to a place of true multiculturalism where everyone feels that sense of belonging versus that assimilation and fitting in. Yes. I thank you so much for answering that. I was just so curious because yeah. I think people don't realize like the difference and what that can look like sometimes in an organization. Let's dive into it. Our our topic is all about how to do DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, right. How to do it right. So we have to start out. If we're going to talk about how to do it right, where do organizations get it wrong? Or where do organizations and leaders today get this wrong? Yeah, Jed. I mean, this is controversial because some people might um, you know, 
historically, the way that organizations respond to DEIB is, hey, we've got to do this because it's the right thing to do, right? We've got to, it's the right thing to do, so we have to respond to it. And oftentimes that can come across as performative. And there's only so much. And so when when it's the right thing to do, it's sort of bucketed in the space of charity, right? And let me ask you, we all in our in our own personal lives, we have various charities, you know, that we're connected to, right? But you know, when push comes to shove, or when right when we're when we're under when we have constraints, you know, where do does our charity in terms of priority where does it fall, right? So we've got to think about it within that context. So when organizations see it as the right thing to do, it seems like charity, right? It's presented as charity and it's not a high priority. So that's where I believe organizations do it wrong. I believe that DIB needs to be introduced into the organization or even if it already was introduced as charity, it needs to be reshaped reframed as a business structure, just like anything else, right? So when we think about, uh, we think about security, right? Security initiatives in the workplace, data security, all of that. Nobody says, oh, it's something, it's the right thing to do. So we've got to do it. No, the way that we frame the conversation around security is our organization, our company can't function without security because Right. And then we start to create strategies around security. We look at the metrics. We look at all of that. And so this is where I feel like one of the one one way in which organizations do it wrong is they're not looking at DEIB as a business function or a business imperative. Secondly, secondly, uh, it's usually sort of dumped on you, right? On one person. Resources, right? And the thing is, human resources historically and generally, I'm generalizing here, but we're always, and I've sat in an human resources capacity for many years, you know, in, in my career, but we're always struggling to secure a seat at the table already, just in terms of, you know, the function of human resources. So now this, this, this concept of the right thing to do, this charity initiative is now dumped on human resources. So now they've got to like add this to their workload. They're not necessarily equipped to do this on their own. They don't necessarily have the expertise and now they've got to figure this out. So it can feel very burdensome for human resources, right? And then they're not given the resources to actually do anything because it's seen as a charity. So there isn't any, there aren't any resources that are provided. So you know what? It's they're set up. We as human resources professionals are set up to kind of fail in this space of DEIB. So that's the second thing that organizations do wrong. Third is when human resources, you know, owns, takes on, you know, uh, ownership of DEIB, one of the things that we don't necessarily, that we're not equipped to do is identify what's the return on investment. Why is this valuable? Quantify it just like we would for anything else, right? For security, if we're building out security programs in the organization, marketing sales, why is this, how is this going to affect the bottom line? And that's a hard question to, to pose. And I think that organizations haven't been given permission to see DEIB in that, you know, in that lens or in that respect, because some people feel like it cheapens it, 
right? Because DIB, it's so personal to, to many of us. Um, it, it, it takes on a stronger meaning, but at the end of the day, what I always, you know, my, my rebuttal is, okay, so I understand it's the right thing to do. I understand that there's a whole emotional component and there are people that are, you know, individuals from marginalized communities who have struggled in the workplace because of, you know, the lack of DEIB, right? But this approach that we're taking for it be to, to be the right thing to do, how is it working for us, right? Because we've been, right. we've been doing this for the last couple of decades. How far have we gotten? We need a new approach, a different approach, an approach that will allow all stakeholders to actually be involved in the conversation. And so that common language within an organization is revenue. It's the bottom line. Start there, and then we can work, work our way back. Um, backwards and really, you know, uh, discuss the soft skills and the emotional, you know, the EQ component of DEIB as well. And I think that's a huge piece to touch on is the emotional component, depending on where someone sits. And it's, I just heard, seen, you know, this resistance because people are afraid of it. They think they're afraid of, in some ways, like, and we talked about this in our pre-call, like that blame and shame, or they feel like it's been pushed as this check the box initiative, but yet they truly don't understand why this is so important. And so organizations, I think sometimes, you know, might be really forgetting to explain like, what is this? Like, this is yeah. why it's important. We're working with human beings, yeah. but yet people think that it's coming as a response to one specific thing and they're missing out on all of the benefits. I'm just curious, like, cause I know I've seen it where it becomes this check, check the box. You've got to do all these trainings every single month, but we're not even inviting them into the conversation. And we're probably just saying like, you've been doing it wrong. So no big deal. Here's the way to do it. Right. Or mm-hmm. I don't know. There's just a lot of different ways I've seen this done. There's a lot of people I've seen even enter the arena of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging experts. Um, And I do think that you have to be, it's not just, it's a mix of different things. And to get everyone on that same conversation, like, how do we do it? It can't just be a push. It can't because then there's that resistance. And yeah, I'd love to hear your response. Yeah. I would say that there's a space this this is a continuum. DEIB is a continuum. It's a it's it's a continuum for every individual, every organization. So, you know, individuals that focus on um, you know a specific area of DEIB, whether it's you know race relations specifically, um, whatever it is, there's a space for all of us and every approach. I believe for organizations. It just depends on where the organization is at the moment and what they need, right? So we've got to really be audience specific. Um, What I would say is absolutely the, you know, I, I hear time and time again, as I work with different clients, I hear people say predominantly uh, white men in these organizations that will share with me, Hey, Martine, I don't feel like I can say anything. I don't feel like I have the right to say anything. I don't want to be shamed or blamed. And that's a problem, right? Because we need everyone in the conversation. And when we look at organizations and the makeup of organizations um, and who's sitting at the helm of the organization, it's usually white men right now. So if they don't feel comfortable or they that they can say anything in these conversations, then how are we going to actually be able to move the needle and move things along? So we really want to invite everyone in. 
And so it really depends on the approach. Now, sometimes the approach looks like we're going to focus on we're going to just do training. We're going to push training down your throats. We're going to uh, push unconscious bias training down your throats. So it really becomes, you know, there, there's certain, there, there are elements of it's, it's got to be a strategy, right? So that's what I'm suggesting. Training is not going to be sufficient, but there's nothing wrong with training when it's combined with strategy, right? And it's the way in which we present training. I don't even believe in DEI training. I believe in learning. There's a difference, right? There's conversations, discussions that looks different than training, right? And I also believe when it's infused and it's incorporated or presented within the framework of foundational skills that managers specifically, um, you know, are already learning, that's when it's a lot more palatable. It's a lot easier to, to process and digest. So that's, that's really, it's that it's really, you know, the way in which, you know, we structure the process that really matters. So that's why, you know, I wrote this book on the ABCs of DEI and it's really for managers, right? It's designed for managers because I believe when we think about, you know, the two groups that, that influence the makeup of an organization is human resources and middle management, right? Middle managers are involved with performance management, compensation, you know, uh, uh, promotions. Uh, they're, they're also involved with hiring. They influence attrition, whether a person decides to stay or not. So we all, most organizations offer some sort of manager development program. So DEI can be embedded right in that program. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's a, just a different aspect of looking at each component of manager development. When we're looking at hiring, right. And we, when we're going through managers are going through training on how to, you know, how to effectively interview behavioral-based interviews. Well, the only difference in presenting DEIB into that conversation is, okay, managers, let's talk about bias. Let's talk about the tendencies that we all carry when we're looking at resumes, right? We, when we look at a resume, we create a story about someone. We actually create a picture in our mind. I went to a, 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 you know, a liberal arts college. If I looked at a resume right now, one person who went to a liberal arts college and one who went to, you know, a, a, a law, a, a, law, a university, I would probably be more inclined to, you know, lean toward the person that went to a liberal arts college subconsciously. So managers, when we're looking at resumes, let's consider what those biases could be and let's try to figure out ways to mitigate it, right? So that's a different way of presenting DEI learning rather than, hey, everyone, we're going to go through this training <laughs> here, you're going to go through this training and, <laughs> yeah. and then you're you're expected to like shift the way that you, 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 you know, you, you behave in the workplace. So that's really what we get to do differently. And when we present it in this way, there's less shame and blame, right? Because people start to digest this and it becomes like a muscle. The more managers digest this, the more they actually start to behave different. And then it permeates throughout the organization, right? That's a different approach. 
Yes. I love that. I've just, it really has to be a part of your culture and it's got to be a part of your strategy and people have to be, have the permission to join the conversation. Those are like three things that I've said, and it's not just training. There has to be dialogue. So let's, let's level set again, Martine, what is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging DEIB intended to do? Because I know we talked about like, this is such a, you can approach this in a variety of different ways, but for those that might be still resistant, like what is this intended to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we first want to break out what DEIB, you know, what it means, right? When we look at diversity, there's so many different components of diversity. I don't think everyone is fully aware of that, right? I mean, I break it out into like three segments, right? One segment being the, you know, the physical, biological. So when we think about gender and race, okay, that is part of that, you know, first component. The second component is cultural, right? I mean, so things such such as things like, um, you know, your age, your marital status, right? That's a component. And the third is really behavior-based behavior. So that can be look, that can look like um, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. And all of those three components are really critical when we're thinking about creating more diverse workplaces, right? But I will, I will say, I do want to make sure that I'm clear in saying that there are going to be certain segments that are more important, more prominent, that should be more prominent within our organization, organizational initiatives, right? You know, equity can look like a lot of things. We immediately think it's solely about compensation. It is about compensation, but it's also about, you know, creating a space where people have access access to training, access to leadership, access to headquarters, access to mentors, things like that, right? And then, you know, inclusion and belonging is really about, right, creating a space where it's not just about bringing someone in on the, bringing someone into the team, but it's really making sure they understand how they contribute to the organization, how they contribute to to your goals as a team. So that means connecting with them regularly, allowing them to share their ideas, making them feel involved, right? And it also involves a level of representation. People feel more involved. They feel like they belong when they see other people that look like them, right? That are, you know, that are, have advanced within the organization. So that's what DEIB really represents. And so the goal of DEIB within the organization is really to create organizations that um, that that foster, that allow all of us to always have our antennas up, to it, 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 our antennas up so that we are thinking about how we can grow our organizations through the the, the myriad and effluvia of people that are coming into the organization, right? So how do we find the best, smartest talent that represent, you know, that 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 represent um, the uh, the makeup of the of U, the U.S. pretty much, right? Like we want the organization to kind of ref, reflect how the demographics of our country. That's one, right? Yeah. As, as possible, but how do we do it in a way where everyone feels like it's fair? There's fairness in that process, right? And when we bring people in, how do we ensure that everyone feels like there's fairness in the process of growing throughout the organization? 
right? So that's really what, what DEIB is intended to do. And at the end of the day, it benefits the organization as a whole. Yes. Yes. The organization. And I mean, this is the piece where I just wish everyone looked at it through that way because it creates a place. We spend so much time at work. And if we can feel like we have a place where we belong, that we're supported, that we're invited into the conversation, I feel like there's mental health, positive mental health impacts that can come for an individual, positive sense of like the the ripple effect that's there. If we just create a place for people to thrive or representative of where you're at, like that is the piece that I hate that it's become kind of this hot button topic of like some people resisting it because of how it's done, because really it's about seeing the whole individual that comes in and then understanding your organization structures, your processes and how and what they could be either helping or hurting that individual. It's caring. (laughs) The thing that I will say is that it's definitely not. I hear some people say it's, you know, the goal of DIB is to create this colorblind space, right? And um, where everyone, every, you know, we don't see color. And I actually disagree with that. I think that you know, the challenge or the issue with, you know, this colorblind theory is it's, it just dismisses people, right? It, it's yeah. very dismissive of people because some of us, we, we want to, it's, it's okay to see color. It's okay to see and acknowledge people for who they are and how they define themselves. That is okay because we want to appreciate that, right? So that's really, you know, it's it's not about getting to a place where we're colorblind. It's getting to a place where we allow people to define themselves and we're accepting of that. And we don't place um, meaning, whether it be positive or negative, we don't place meaning on people based on what we see, what we hear, but we place meaning on their actions, right? That's really where we want to get to. That's the goal of DIB. Yes. I love that. I I want it there. I want it now, Martine. Like I want it to be this place where that's what we're focusing on. We're not getting maybe more confused or I guess, like I would say even just excluding or disengaging from it, we're getting to a place where we can understand what that looks like for someone. And I think the differentiation that you made, like assigning labels, good or bad, like you still have to understand who that individual is like, and what, like what their pride is, who they are, how they see that. It's not going to be the same for every single one of us, even though you might notice similar, similar. And I put in air quotes things like we're still completely different people. Crestown is a global organization dedicated to developing effective leaders. Companies all over the world have seen their managers transformed into leaders through our award-winning and accredited leadership development programs. Our signature BPM program provides interactive management training with a results-oriented curriculum and prime networking opportunities. If you're interested in learning more about our flagship program and developing your managers into leaders, please visit our website to find a leadership trainer near you. Or maybe you yourself have always wanted to train and develop others. Crestcom is a global franchise with ownership opportunities available throughout the world. If you have ever thought about being your own boss, owning your own business, and leveraging your leadership experience to impact businesses and leaders in your community, Crestcom may be the right fit for you. We're looking for professional executives who are looking for a change and want to make a difference in people's lives. Learn more about our franchise opportunity on the Own a Franchise page of our website at crestcom.com.
Okay. So we're going to get into doing it right because we talked about, you know, some of those problems. I loved so many of the insights that you shared. Martine, how do we do DEIB right? Where do you start? Uh, we start by first not using um, the, you know, academic talk, <laughs> academic speak in the workplace because that just doesn't, it, it, academia is a completely different space and structure. And um, when we do that, that's when DEIB becomes really intimidating, right? Um, human resources professionals, individuals within organizations feel like, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm equipped to lead these kind of conversations. I don't feel like, um, you know, we're going to get to that place, you know, where we're actually doing DEIB right because we're using academia as a framework, right? So what we get to do is create our own common language around DEIB within our organization, right? So that's one way to do it right. But another thing that we get to do- a quick question. And when you say like that, you're just saying to like modify- like instead of calling it diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, find what is going to be the most productive to like support those conversations in your workplace that we don't have to call it that because, you know, it can be, yeah. Okay. Perfect. I love that. Just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. We don't have to call it that. We don't have to worry about, okay, you know, do I understand? Will I know when something is a microaggression? A microaggression is pretty much when someone, if someone comes to you and says they're offended by something you did or said, potentially that's a microaggression. So it's less about being able to define it and being able to figure out whether or not it's a microaggression or not. And it's really about just being conscientious of other people, right? And their their emotions, their feelings, and not being, not feeling like you get to be the judge of how other people feel. That's a different way to frame or reframe all these concepts that are coming at us. So that's really what I'm saying. It's people get so stuck in the minutia of the concepts. People go, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, Martine, I really don't understand, you know, what LGBTQIA plus is. And I feel like I need to understand all the different subcomponents so I can actually engage in conversation. And, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that overwhelming. We make it a little bit too overwhelming. Let's just start with asking questions. Let's start with just acknowledging that we're, we can enter a space, like you said earlier, a, di- a space of dialogue where we get to learn from each other. That's it, right? So that's that's a different approach. So that's the first thing. Another way of doing, doing DEIB right in organizations is looking at the metrics. And what I'm, what I'm suggesting is not just the metrics looking at like one layer of metrics, because that's what a lot of organizations do, right? They, you know, they'll, they'll say, okay, we're going to look across the board. We're going to look at gender. We're going to look at ethnicity uh, across the board. All right. Yeah. The numbers look okay. So we're fine. That is not enough, right? What I'm suggesting is that there are tools and systems out there that allow you to actually measure and look at the sub and the cross section of different fields, different metrics. So you can look at gender and race and age, right? You can look at those three layers, right? The the cross section of all those three by department, by region, that tells a completely different story, right? And that's where you're able to identify where there's opportunity, right? And a lot of organizations don't like doing that because it's it's frightening. They're frightened of what they might see. But I want to remind all of us that it's a we're all starting 
you know, from an, a, a place of opportunity. So those numbers may not look like what you want them to look like, but that's okay. Start from, you know, we're all starting from, from, from home base, right? So look at the numbers and remember that you don't have to, the goal is not to try to grow them, like change the numbers overnight. It takes time, right? So that's the second thing that we can do differently or better in terms of DEIB. Really look at the, the, the cross-section of metrics and use systems, not HRS systems, but there are other tools and platforms that are specific to DEIB that will support you in you know, pulling those inf- that information and metrics. The third thing that I would say that we need to do or we can do is identify immediately, and I mentioned this earlier, what's the value? What's the metric that, what's, what's the benefit of DEIB in our organization? right? Because that is going to be the thing that draws everyone in, right? That's going to be the equalizer of DIB, right? So, and usually what I recommend is it be quantifiable, right? So if you're a B2B business or B2C business, um, is there an opportunity to grow your market share, increase your market share, right? Start there. If you're a B2B business, you know, is there opportunity to, um, you know, generate more partnerships? And who are your partners? Look, you know, who do they work with? Who are they? Their customers, right? Um, so that's how we start to actually make DIB a business imperative. So those are three things right off the bat that we can start doing differently. Fourth, I'll say is don't run to start creating programs because that's very exciting. Like programs are lovely. Before you start to create programs, have a strategy. Why are you creating the programs, right? Because if you create programs and no strategy, how do you scale it, right? I mean, where does the money come from to maintain these programs? So have a strategy, right? And I would say the last thing is make the distinction between EEOC. And this kind of goes back to the other point that we made earlier, Jen, about, you know, people feeling, being fearful of engaging in DEI because they equate DEI sometimes with, you know, equal employment, you know, opportunities, um, equal employment, what is EOC, equal employment opportunity. I forget what that last C stands for, but that's more, you know, that's more, it's legal, right? It's uh, statutory, right? And DEI is more um, policy driven. So when we don't address DEI, right. And let's say someone, you know, we don't have initiatives within our organization that support individuals to mitigate bias, right. And, you know, and, and, and microaggressions, if someone con- consistently experiences this, right, they might eventually feel like they want to take legal action. Then it becomes an EEOC situation or issue. But EEOC is more statutory, right? And DEI is more policy-based and policy-driven, right? So so I I think it's important that organizations make that distinction. You know, of course, EEOC is is much more of, it's mandated, right? We've got to make sure that these, you know, these actions are taken. And DEI, DEIB is, you know, it's optional, But I think that this, you know, when we address DEIB in organizations and we focus on it first, we actually mitigate and minimize the, the, you know, the chances of us having more EEOC issues in our organization, right? 
So that's another, I think I listed four things that we can do right in organizations to drive DEIB. Who do you think are the individuals? I know that you talked about earlier, so you've got to have the strategy. Because I think right now, some people's strategies are introduce DEIB training into the workforce, but that's not necessarily, like, what is the goal? The goal can't be just to have the training. Like, what do you want to see as a result of it? And I like that distinction that I think you're making is like, it's not just checking the box with that. Like, what are you actually wanting from that? And now how do you build a strategy? That's right. Not to that's just say, hey, I got this. That's right. And that's why when you quantify it, right? When you identify what's that return, what's the value of doing this, right? You identify that first. And secondly, where are we now, right? We look at the metrics. Where are we now, right? Now, you, then we get to create the strategy on where, you know, how do we get from, to, from where we are to where we want to go, right? So that, you know, where we are is our baseline. Where we want to go is going to help us reach our, you know, our that ROI. And then we create strategies around that. We create processes. We create procedures. And programs is part of, is a component of a strategy, but it's not the only strategy, right? So like I said, you know, it's one thing to say, we're just going to, we're going to have training, but it's another thing to say, we're going to provide um, we're going to provide, uh, you know, managers with training, DEI training, and it's going to be part of their manager development program, right? We're going to do that. And we're also going to now, you know, we're going to have a scorecard that actually that's part of that. So we're able to assess whether or not, right, you know, we're actually moving the needle on DEI or going forward with performance, you know, um, performance evaluations, what we're going to do is we're going to check for potential biases in the recaps that managers share, or we're going to, after performance evaluations and after promotions or in the process of promotions, we're going to look at, you know, what's the rate of promotion by gender, by race, by whatever, and how does that, you know, what's that correlation to who's leaving the organization, right? So, that's what I mean when I say strategy. Or we're going to, in terms of strategy, we're going to look at our pipeline. We're going to look at who are we bringing in? Are we widening our pool of individuals who are coming in entry level or our internship program? What's the, what's the conversion of our interns? Where are we pulling our interns from? And then once we figure out Okay, this is part of the strategy. We're going to, you know, we want to, um, you know, increase our pipeline and we want to strengthen it or we want to, you know, create a different position, entry level position so that we can widen our pool of candidates. Right. Because a lot of organizations or I won't say a lot, but some organizations will say, look, we only allow for candidates who have this particular degree. Right come into our organization. And my follow-up is, well, could you, could you, is there an opportunity to create another entry-level position, right? Um, That where a person can actually graduate from that position into, you know, this other, you know, position that you're, you require a particular degree for, right? So that they can grow and they can, you know, you can maybe sponsor them getting that degree. So that's part of strategy development. And when you develop that strategy, what comes with it is, okay, well, then what kind of learning do we need to to also implement, right? And how do we support 
our managers? How do we support leadership in understanding why we're doing this, why this matters? Well, that involves learning. That involves discussions, right? That's how, that's how strategy can and should work more effectively. Yeah. I'm happy that you even brought up just thinking about it's rethinking different ways. I know that I worked for an organization that heavily recruited at big 10 universities and then just thinking about all the places that they missed seeing talent because they only went there. And, you know, it's not just, I I'm so happy that you said that because we aren't aware of our bias or even that affinity bias of how we naturally gravitate towards people that are most like ourselves. Every person does it. It's an unconscious bias. Like we're not judging. We're not throwing out judgment. We are throwing out the place to understand and reflect and think and be curious. Um, and so how do you embed that strategy into the organization? How would you advise people to approach that? Yeah. With, affinity bias or well, or, well thinking about like, cause I know that we had talked about how do we get like, what, how do people actually in, reinforce like the efforts of the organization? Does that lie specifically within HR to take that through? Or what do we need to do with leaders to help them embed strategy into the culture? So it starts with human resources because usually they're the ones who are charged with that responsibility. So it starts there, but it can't just end there. Right. What we know is that anyone, even, you know, chief diversity officers, the likely, you know, the, you know, the time span they usually stay within an organization, their position is on average three years, because if they're the only ones charged with that responsibility, it's heavy, it's a burden and not one person can change, you know, DEI for an entire organization. So everyone has to be involved. So the way that I see it and the way that I recommend it recommended is yes, you've got human resources, if they're charged with owning DEI, they're responsible, you know, they get to, you know, be responsible for identifying what that ROI is, identifying, you know, what that strategy can look like, right? Um, and building it out and presenting it to, 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 to their stakeholders, one being leadership. So leadership has to be held accountable as well. So when we're talking about you know, widening our pool of candidates, widening our networks, right? We get to hold leadership responsible. They get to, we get to hold them, we can hold them responsible in scorecards, right? We can also look at usually, you know, in organizations, leadership, you know, they own different regions of the market or, you know, in that way. So let, why not have some sort of metrics around that. Now, I want to be clear that we're not talking about quotas, right? So I know that that is a a, 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 a real fear for a lot of indiv- for people in organizations, right? Um, that DEI means we're going to have quotas, and it means we're going to bring in individuals that are less qualified than you know than others. That's not true, right? I mean, that's not the the goal of DEI and that doesn't happen. That shouldn't happen because we're going to bring in, the the goal is to widen the pool of candidates. And when you widen the pool of candidates, qualified, eligible candidates, you increase the likelihood of bringing in somebody, right, who may not look like some, the majority of the people in your organization, but has just as much experience if not more, and can contribute more. So what we get to do, though, is we get to hold each leader accountable to making sure that this stuff is actually happening in their area, in their region. They get to, you know, they're holding their managers accountable, right? 
So our managers, so our human resources is driving the strategy, right? Uh, leadership is being held accountable for this strategy and the managers are in the middle, right? The managers are actually reinforcing all of this through the, the people, right? Because the managers are the ones who are actually doing the hiring. They're the ones who are actually doing the promotions. They're the ones who are actually, you know, determining compensation. So they're kind of like in the middle, you know, actually implementing it, but their leaders are at, are being held accountable for making sure that it's happening. So that is how this relationship can work in, in a symbiotic way to really drive DEI strategy, right? I mean, I think of it like a, you know, you think of a, a scorecard, uh, not a scorecard, excuse me, um, a playbook, right? I think you can, you can create and have a a DEI playbook, just like you would have a sales playbook. This is what, who you know, this person's going to, you know, their responsibility is X, Y, Z. This person's responsibility is X, Y, Z. And this is how we're going to actually see that it's working, right? And it's not enough to say, we're just going to look at the makeup of the organization to see if it's changed. We don't want that, right? Because that suggests creating, establishing, you know, quotas. That's not what we want, what we're looking at is how are we widening our pool of candidates? Who are we actually, you know, who are we looking at when we're looking at resumes? What resumes are we looking at? And in conjunction with that, right, are we helping our managers mitigate their biases? Because we all have biases, like you said, right? Do managers understand how those biases happen? And in that interview process, what are the different ways that we can mitigate biases? Yes, managers can understand how to mitigate their own biases, but what if we had an ERG you know, someone from our ERG also engage in the interview process of a candidate. So not only is the manager interviewing that candidate, but now there's another pool of people who, you know, who have, who might potentially be unbiased, who can also interview that candidate, right? That's what it can look like. These are the type of conversations that can happen to actually make the change, you know, that we're looking for. Oh my gosh, Martine, I've loved our conversation. And just as a reminder, it starts with your strategy and how are you getting people into the strategy, but also educating them on what it is and what it's not. Because I think you're right. There's a lot of noise in terms of people coming to conclusions or jumping, maybe assuming what it is. And that's not like quotas. Like it's not what it's designed to do. It's designed to expand you. So you can have access to a broader pool of talent. Martine, I loved our conversation. I know I want to send our audience to your site. How do they get in touch with you? I know that you're promoting a masterclass. Give us all the details on how we can connect with you. Yeah, Jen. So um, my next masterclass is April 27th from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, it's just an opportunity for HR professionals, human resource professionals to join me so we can talk about the five things that you can do, implement, in the next 90 days to really move DEI forward, right? So we're going to really dig in and, and, you know, figure that out together. And you can go directly to my website, www.martinecalau.com, and you can go ahead and sign up. And I'd love to have you there. All right. Perfect. Martine, thank you so much for sharing your time, your expertise, your passion, and also helping us understand how we can do it the right way to actually get the intended impact of what we want. I'm just so grateful for this conversation. Thank you for bringing it in a different way and check out her masterclass until next time, Martine. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. I love my conversation with Martine Palau. 
And as she shared, if you are an HR professional and you are interested in attending her live masterclass on April 27th from 12 to 1 Eastern, you can sign up at martinefalau.com backslash masterclass, or you can find the link in our show notes. And if you know someone that could benefit from hearing this conversation, please share the episode. And don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast streaming service.